This morning, we come to our third and final sermon on Revelation chapter 11. All of chapter 10 and all of chapter 11 to this point have been an interlude. A pause between the sixth and the seventh trumpet. And here today we come to the seventh trumpet. And you'll remember chapter 10 told us that when the seventh trumpet sounds, the mystery of God will be accomplished. And so that is, we are coming here today to a depiction of the end, of the final judgment. And we'll look at the text under the four headings that are in your bulletin, the announcement, the trumpet, the worship, and the temple. The announcement, the trumpet, the worship, and the temple. So we're at Revelation chapter 11, beginning of verse 14. First, the announcement. You'll remember that the last three trumpet judgments were called woes. Two of them, the fifth and the sixth trumpets, which we looked at back in chapter 9, they're past. And the third woe, the seventh trumpet, is soon to come. In fact, that's the content of our text today. The seventh trumpet is the third woe. The third woe is the seventh trumpet. Now, it'd be nice if there were no woes, I suppose. We are not naturally uh, inclined to find woes likable. But remember, John was told he has to eat the book. And the book's sweet, but there's a bitterness in the book, in his stomach. There are about a hundred woes in the Bible. You know who pronounces the most woes? Jesus. Some 25 times he begins his speech with woe to a person or a town or a city or a people. It's not cheerful to have your seventh trumpet announced as a woe, but that's what we have. We'll see the significance of this later. So the second point is the trumpet itself. Verse 15, the seventh angel sounds his trumpet and there are loud voices in heaven. Turns out in heaven... They're not as upset by woes as we are. Loud voices appear some 19 times in Revelation. Often in scenes of worship like we have here. And so worship in heaven, especially here when we come to the end and the the angelic hosts are peering in on the scene, worship at, at the end is Boisterous. It's a response to the vindication of the martyrs of the church. The first coming of Christ, the first advent, right, was attended by a joyous heavenly choir, and the second advent is going to be accompanied by a raucous heavenly celebration. Worship is loud. And what the heavenly hosts say here is the summary, the aspiration, the desire, the hope of the ages. They say the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. This text is inscribed over the high altar of Westminster Abbey in London. 
And there, for a thousand years, kings and queens were crowned. And the text then was serving as a solemn reminder to monarchs that their crowns are both temporary and their crowns are borrowed. The kingdom belongs to God and to his Christ. Our fathers didn't think a text like this floated above English monarchial and political life. Somewhere way up there, there's a kingdom that's God's king. They wanted the monarch to have this text read to them upon their installation. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our God and his Christ. Notice that the ki- that kingdom here is singular. The kingdom of the world is one entity, and in its totality, dominion over the world is here transferred to the Lord and to His Christ. So a number of points, I think, are in order here. I want to make a couple. First, the kingdom of God. That's a phrase that really should fire our imagination. The kingdom of God is for... Many of us, it's much too wispy and otherworldly. It's uh, thin, ethereal. It's floating out there. I think this is a, a big mistake. While the kingdom of God is not of this world, that is, it doesn't originate in this world, it very much concerns this world. Notice the text doesn't say the kingdom of this world has vanished and the kingdom of God has come to replace it. It says there's been a transfer. That the kingdom of this world has been transferred and become the kingdom of our Lord and His Christ. I've always felt that substituting the word civilization for kingdom can help people grasp this. In other words, if we were to constantly talk about the civilization of God, then people would get something of the rich earthiness, the the sort of cultural and political ramifications of what are implied when we talk about or we proclaim or we declare the kingdom of God. God loves the world, and he intends to save it. And secondly, this means that the transfer of power here is most definitely and very profoundly political. Satan, or the God of this world, has his sovereignty stripped from him. It's taken by the Lord and his Christ. And what this means, and what it meant when John wrote it, what it means today, it means that the Roman beast and all other beasts All other empires, all other idolatrous states are pronounced here as defeated. It's a statement about the political power structure of the world. And this happens, of course, in principle, it happens, it begins to happen with the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. But the rest of this passage will make it very clear that that is not what's in view here. What's in view in this text is the coming eternal 
final form of the kingdom. Notice also, the kingdom of the world, the text says, has become the kingdom of our Lord, that is the Lord God, and His Christ. Jesus, the Messiah. They rule as one. They're co-regents. And this means the Lamb, the Christ, is divine. He shares the Father's throne. We've repeatedly seen this in Revelation. This is one of the great books of Scripture for depicting the radiance and the glory and the divinity of Jesus Christ. Perhaps no book in the New Testament has as exalted a conception of Jesus Christ. And remember, this is the John who laid his head on the Lord's breast. The one whom Jesus loved. This John constantly sees Jesus as divine. Finally, note this, that the kingdom and this reign are eternal. He shall reign forever and ever. Over against, as we've seen repeatedly, all of the fleeting temporal thrones. Again, I remind you of Augustine's great words that in our civic affairs, dead men are replaced by dying men. Over against all the fleeting temporary thrones, as the Nicene Creed puts it, his kingdom shall have no end. So this scene here is is the reality we all long for when we pray the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come. This is what we are praying for. There's no prayer more politically charged than that. Thy kingdom come. It's a subversive statement. It's a dissent. It's a form of protest. It says, you know what? I'm not particularly happy with the existing array of kingdoms. Thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth. Not thy will be done on some up there somewhere. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory now and forever. So it turns out, it turns out that all prayer, all Christian prayer, I don't care if it's Lord help me, or if it's praying the whole Lord's Prayer, all prayer is bent Toward this scene. There's no praying that isn't gathered up and pointed in this direction. The first thing Paul tells the Ephesian church when he tells them how to pray, he says, I pray that God will give you a spirit of revelation that you might know the hope to which you are called. The chief and first point of prayer is to have an interior, intuitive, illumined vision of this scene. 
This is how the apostle prays for his churches. He prays that they might know the hope to which they are called. And so this then, and we've said this before, but it's, 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 it needs to be repeated because we forget it. That's our nature. The end of all things is not a wonderful footnote at the end of history. This is the throbbing heartbeat of the church's life. So, the third point here is worship. In verse 16, the 24 elders, we've already seen, they represent the fullness of the church in both testaments. They sit on thrones because they share in the kingdom's rule. They fall on their faces. They worship God. And their worship, like all true worship, begins with gratitude. The text says, we give thanks. The word Eucharist means thanksgiving. Worship is Eucharistic. It's driven by gratitude. And so grace always produces gratitude wherever it's truly received. But what's going on here is that the heavenly hosts are expressing gratitude for the final judgment. The theater of worship here is the scene of the Lord God Almighty coming to reign. Have we ever given thanks to God for the coming final judgment? We should be. This is part of our gratitude. And they give thanks, the text says, to the one called the Lord God Almighty. Again, John uses this over and over to speak of God's lordship over history for the sake of his people. It's a reference to his almighty power. The power which he will use to rectify the world. It will take almighty power to rectify the world. To raise the dead. And what happens in the text next can kind of slide by. We read it this morning for our call. It's really quite stunning. John has used this threefold designation. Throughout the text, we've seen it a couple times. The one who is, the one who was, and the one who is to come. And now he's changed it. Now it's the one who is, the one who was, and has now taken his great power and begun to reign. There's no more reference to God's sovereignty over the future or to his coming. There's no more future here for the Lord God Almighty has come to reign. It's an important signaling uh, event in the text. Later in the book, in uh, chapter 19, there's this great scene of the marriage supper of the Lamb. And there's a roar. Just like there are loud voices here, there's a roar there. And the text says, Hallelujah, the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. This is the final coming of Christ that's being depicted in the text. So verse 18, we step back a little bit, just a little. And in verse 18, we have the history of the world. The history of the world summed up in seven little words. The nations raged, but your wrath came. It's not a bad summary of the whole history of the world. 
not a particularly cheerful one. But there you have it. The nations raged or the nations were angry. But your wrath came. This is a reference to Psalm 2. This is a reference to Psalm 2. A very important Old Testament psalm. A psalm which points forward to Jesus as Messiah. A psalm often quoted in the New Testament. And in Psalm 2, the nations are raging. They rage against the Lord and His anointed one, His Christ. But God, in the text, in Psalm 2, He laughs. He scoffs at their futility. The silliness of the nation's turmoil and all their raging, roiling machinations, all their maneuvering. He scoffs at their futility and their defeat. Because his reign is not threatened. His purposes are not imperiled. God's serenity is undisturbed. His will is unchallenged. His glory is untainted. Notice these words here in the text. Raged or or were angry and wrath. They're related words. And and the point the Spirit is making in the text is that the judgments of God are a a manifestation. They show forth this Old Testament principle of an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. Which I believe a politician said was his favorite verse this week. And then proceeded to show us he did not understand the text. But... That is for another time. Here, um, the point is that the judgments of God are a manifestation of this eye for eye, tooth for tooth. That's known as the lex talianus, the law of retaliation. In other words, when these judgments come, the punishment fits the crime. Rage is met with wrath. God, the psalmist says what? Makes even the wrath of men to praise him. This is why God is not threatened. Even the wrath and the hostility and the rebellion of political powers and nations, he can make that to praise him. And so at the end of verse 18, the context here is placed beyond doubt. The coming of God's wrath, his taking of his great power and his reigning, is, the text says, the time for the dead to be judged. It's the time for the dead to be judged. This is the same scene, same language as the great white throne judgment in chapter 20. There we're told the dead, great and small, stand before the throne to be judged. And judgment here means vindication. The vindication of the saints. So you can see that in verse 18. The time is the time for rewarding your servants. The prophets, the saints, those who reverence your name. Both small and great. The whole company of the faithful are in view here. All saints we saw earlier in this chapter were depicted as prophets. We argued that the two prophets are a picture of the whole church, called to, to bear witness. Well, here they are, your servants, the prophets. All the dead are raised, all the saints are judged and rewarded here. 
So, I think it's worth saying that there's nothing, absolutely nothing, base or unchristian about rejoicing in this judgment. Remember, we're in the middle of a heavenly choir of thanksgiving and worship here. This is a praise chorus, this text. The whole heavenly host rejoices. Now, when you think of the final judgment, there is no doubt in Scripture, dreadful and scary scenes. And perhaps for that reason, we might shy away from it. And there's no way that we're going to eliminate all the dread or the terror. But there's a, there's a key component here that we're reminded of that's important. My favorite illustration of this comes from Psalms 96, 97, 98, especially 98. There's a depiction in those Psalms of the Lord coming. And it says, the Lord is coming, let the sea roar and all that's in it. Let the earth shout for joy. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. For the Lord comes to judge the earth. He will judge the people with righteousness and the nations with equity. It is an exhilarating, joyful, liberating vision to to conceive of God coming to set the world right. Yes, does that mean there's no dread in it? There's no, no, of course not. We've seen repeatedly in Revelation that John can hold terror and joy completely together. It's our problem that they fall apart in our hands. Well, we think, well, it, well, if it's a dreadful, terrible scene, it can't be a joyful scene. If you're mourning, you can't be blessed. If Jesus is a man of griefs, he can't be anointed with the oil of joy above his companions. This is not a problem for Scripture. This idea of God coming to judge the world is full of great consolation. It should be something we long for, and it is celebrated in Scripture. And it's celebrated here. And so if we cut, if we cut the coming judgment, the vindication of the saints out of our worship, out of our prayer... This stuff is at the bottom of our prayer. We saw that with the Lord's Prayer. If we cut it out of our gratitude, we've lost something essential. We've not lost something marginal when this drops out of our vision. We've stripped worship of its reality as an act which stands under this end. An act which anticipates this end. An act which prays for this end. An act which declares and proclaims the gospel for this end. An act which calls for exactly this end. And we turn the whole thing, the whole Christian life, into a very pleasant, admittedly, this worldly phenomenon. So then Christianity becomes about moral rules and it's all shrunk down to the scope of our own little narrow concerns. Our own lives. It loses any sense of cosmic magnitude. It it, it doesn't taste like the powers of the age to come. It tastes like people trying to be really good now, thoroughly embedded in this age. Everything is at stake in the church's sense and sensibilities about the end. Everything. 
So finally, the 24 elders return to the theme of judgment at the end of verse 18. And they say, this time is also the time for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Destroying the destroyers. There it is again. That's that eye for eye principle. And the destroyers of the earth in the book of Revelation are the beast and his followers. Statist empires which seek to crush the church. They bear the guilt in Revelation for the ravaging of the land and the sky and the waters, which the book uh, sets forth. Right? These powers have reversed God's desire in Genesis for us to care for the earth. And so these powers, these empires have assumed a perverse dominion. And there is, of course, in the... In, in Christian thought, a very legitimate and real environmental concern that the church must have. That, however, is not the focus of this text. And so we ought to be careful not to equate this language with modern concerns, as valid as the modern concerns might be. The earth is ravaged here because the saints are destroyed. Jeremiah 51, I'll spend a minute on this just to show you where John is drawing from. Jeremiah 51, he speaks of ancient Babylon. Again, a type of the Babylon that appears in Revelation. And he says, I'm against you, the prophet says, O destroying mountain which destroys the whole earth. And so Jeremiah is thinking about the Babylonian Empire's persecution, their bloodshed, their plunder. Babylon is a destroyer of the earth. In chapter 18 of this book, when Babylon's destroyed, we're told she's judged because in her was found the blood of the prophets and the saints and all who have been on earth. And so in chapter 19, there's another heavenly multitude and it's celebrating the downfall of Babylon. And they say that God has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants. So it's Babylonian empires with their immorality and their greed and their persecution of the church which corrupt the earth. They drench the earth with righteous blood. And in this way, they're the destroyers of the earth. If you want to know where the earth is being destroyed today, go to Syria. The earth is being destroyed wherever the bodies of Christ's witnesses lay. Finally, the temple. The last point's the temple. When Babylon is destroyed, verse 19 tells us God's temple in heaven was opened. This refers to God's immediate presence. His presence that comes to us without anything intervening. We often desire this right now. But God's presence is mediated to us now. Primarily through the word and through the sacraments. We do not see God face to face now. We do not have the full, glorious, direct communication with God that we might often long for. If we did, it would mean the final judgment is at hand. There would no longer be time for decision, time for repentance, time for faith, time for service, time for love. We are often wanting the wrong things 
And one of the ways Christians want the wrong things is they want their own little special appearance of God for them. As if that could happen without the end being at hand. But when this scene occurs, the temple in heaven is opened and God himself appears. And when God himself appears, that means the final judgment is at hand. That's the significance of the Ark of the Covenant lost since the exile being seen in heaven here. It's symbolic language. It says that when God comes in judgment, He comes personally. He comes in the fullness of His glory. You see this ark in the heavenly temple for the first time. And here John is alluding to the fact that the law, which sat inside the ark, that law meets out justice. Meets out the judgment here. And the atoning mercy seat, that provides the basis for the vindication of the saints. Notice what else happens in the text. God is ineffable. You can't see him and you can't touch him. He's known in his works. Even when he appears face to face in the end, he's elusive, transcendent, mysterious, never subject to our grasp, never within our control. God is always free, sovereign, subject. He is never, ever, ever object. And so he appears and he's shrouded by these cosmic Mount Sinai-like phenomenon. The text says there were flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and an earthquake and heavy hail. Now we saw this loud collection, this cacophony, this chaos back in chapter 4 proceeded from the throne. That great throne scene in chapter 4 had this noise in it. And there we said something that was, I think, important for the rest of the book. We said this means that all the judgments in the book, they flow from the throne. Now, this is an important literary point. I'm going to make an important literary point here about the book. In chapter 4, it was lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. Three things. Three things. In the seventh seal, the second time we see this language, it's four things. Lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and an earthquake. Seventh seal, four things. Here, in the seventh trumpet, it's five things. Lightnings, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. And in chapter 16... When the seventh bowl of wrath is poured out, it'll be an even fuller description. What this does is it confirms one of the great presuppositions I have about the book, which is that the seals and the trumpets and the bowls are parallel to one another. They all run up to the end, but then they come back and they loop back again to the beginning and they describe the whole scenario again, only more intensely, more vividly, more fully. And this is one of John's literary ways of telling you that. So, we are at the end here. Maybe to put it another way is to say we're at the end, but we're not at the end of depictions of the end. This is not the first time in the book the end has been depicted. It won't be the last time. But God has appeared. That's the important thing. The temple in heaven is open. He's appeared to execute 
the final judgment. Now, I've already said a few words about this. I, I know a passage like this can seem far away and irrelevant. But that is a tragedy, and I've already indicated why it's a tragedy. We have to be shaped by the end in our worship and outlook. The whole gospel, the whole New Testament, thinks of the church as the people of the end, an eschatological people, the people who belong to the age to come, the people of the future, the new humanity, the beachhead of the new civilization. The church is nothing like just a, a social organization that gets together for, for charitable and moral purposes. That's, that is to completely miss the whole conception of the New Testament view of the church. The, new, the church is the body of the risen and ascended Christ. The people of the future. The people who live out of the future. The people that are neither Jew nor Gentile, but what the early fathers called the third race. They are not a nice society within this present order. I know it looks like that. I know it feels like that. I know that if a sociologist came and studied us for a week, he would declare that's what the church is. You know, it's a uh, tax-exempt, uh, charitable, and educational institution that uh, has some beliefs about this Jesus of Nazareth. It would be unfortunate if we were to view it that way. The, the appearance of Jesus Christ shatters the whole age. And so the end doesn't simply matter at the end, it, it matters now. It's often hard to cash this out, I understand. But it's clear that a life pervaded by this reality is a, is a holy and a sober life, a joyful life, but also a well-proportioned life. You can cut this out and, and, and still look and feel Christian but it, you end up with something that's just too determined by this age. Something fundamentally is lost. So the end changes everything now. The end relativizes everything. Does not a scene like this put some things in perspective for you? The end relativizes everything. A person who takes this scene seriously cannot possibly think that the most important thing is their family. They cannot possibly think that the most important thing is their nation. They cannot possibly think that the most important thing is their health. They cannot possibly think that the most important thing is their children. They cannot possibly think that the most important thing is their job. The most important thing is that the kingdom in its totality of this whole world, is to become the kingdom of our Lord and His Christ. And without this end, this, by the way, does not mean all those things I listed are not important. They're just not the most important thing. They're relativized. They're put back in their place. That's all. Without the end, though, without this end right here, history is meaningless. It would just be a jumble of chaotic nonsense. But with this end, then all of our thoughts and our words and our deeds, all of them become significant. They're fraught with a kind of glorious weight. 
Someone would say to me, so what's the practical takeaway of having a vision of a scene like this in Revelation? I would say it goes to the sense of weightiness of your words and your actions. No end, no moral actors in history. A scene like this reminds us that it's glorious and joyful and dreadful just to be. To be a human being. Because we're going to be gathered up into this end and evaluated and vindicated. And our gratitude. Right? Some have called gratitude the nerve center of the Christian life. Our gratitude is formed by this event. Our thanksgiving is ordered and terminates on this event. And this is deep in the logic of the Christian faith. We look at the cross of Jesus, where he dies for our sins, where he bears our judgment, where he's raised for our vindication, and we give thanks to God for that. And what we are doing, why our gratitude flows from there, is because that cross is this scene, this end, brought forth forward into history. The cross is the final judgment and vindication of the saints brought forward. It's connected to this end. It's it's the end moved forward. So this is the gratitude which lives in Christ who has appeared. And it lives in the hope that he shall take his great power. He shall destroy the destroyers of the earth. It lives in the hope of his possessing the kingdom forevermore. This is why the church cries out continually in the spirit. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.